Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of my recent conversation with Jacob Shapiro of Perch Perspectives. Now, with geopolitics becoming an ever more important component for investors, I was delighted to have a chance to chat with Jacob. He cut his teeth under George Friedman, spending a decade at Stratfor, and now with both Cognitive Investments and his own consulting firm, Perch Perspectives, Jacob is out on his own at what is shaping up, I have to say, to be what looks like a golden age for geopolitical strategists. With so many flashpoints seemingly erupting all at once, this seemed like the perfect time for me to chat with Jacob about Vladimir Putin's plans for Russia and Ukraine, Xi Jinping's plans for China and Taiwan, Erdogan's plans for Turkey, assuming, of course, that he has one, and to get an overall sense of where we stand in a unipolar world in which two once-and-future superpowers are openly challenging America's hegemonic status. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, and The Narrative Game, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go, Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show, and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, please enjoy the show. Well, Jacob, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to you at what seems to be <laughs> a time for you and the guys who inhabit your little corner of our world. It's going to be a busy few years, I suspect. Uh, it feels like vindication. It feels like all the things that we've been beating the drum about for all this time are, are finally starting to happen. So, for, I mean, for a while, I think some of us were were looking in the mirror and wondering if we were crazy and if the world had right. passed us by, but uh, it appears not. There's so much to dig into, and we'll make sure we do that shortly. But there'll be plenty of people listening to this that aren't familiar with you. So, so perhaps you could just give us a little bit of your background, you know, your, your career path to this point. And, then, and I've got a very broad question I want to ask you to, to frame the discussion. Sure. So I, I took a very circuitous path to becoming a, a geopolitics expert. It was not what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be an academic studying medieval Islamic philosophy back in the day. Um, graduated into the 2008 financial crisis, so that dates me, uh, and ended up an intern at Stratfor, which was a global intelligence operation. Um, and that just so happened to be a good time to be an intern there because the Arab Spring kicked off. And suddenly, if you knew Arabic and you knew some rudimentary things about Islamic theology, you were actually a rather valuable commodity. Um, so I started at Stratfor as a Middle East analyst. And you know, for, for the past 12, 13 years, um, moving on from um, Stratfor to GPF to founding my own firm, Perch Perspectives, and working with companies like Cognitive Investments or writing for Lycaon, um, you know, have have gotten gl- more global in focus, but started really as this very focused Middle East analyst and now have broadened out to become um, somebody who advises companies and investors around the world on how geopolitics affects their interests. Fantastic. So listen, what I'd love to kick off with is, and it sounds like such a simple question, but it's, it's something that... Um, I think it's worth framing again. You know, geopolitics is something that is is thrown around a lot, and I suspect is going to be thrown around a lot more in the years to come. So let's begin with a definition of what geopolitics is, the grand game. How should we frame it? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you're asking this question, and uh, my my um, 
my academic bent maybe comes out a bit in that I, I always want to talk about semantics and definitions first. But really, really simply, geopolitics is an approach to understanding the world that basically surmises that geography is the most important factor in how nations and how states, how mature political communities behave. Um, that sounds really straightforward, but when you actually think about that for a second, um, it should problematize how that word is used when you're mostly reading it in a newspaper. So if you pick up the Wall Street Journal and they're writing something like geopolitics is affecting the semiconductor supply chain, that means absolutely nothing. That's garbage. Right. That's, a, right. that's a garbage line meant to like, you know, so that they don't have to actually sit, sit down and write what's going on in that particular supply chain. Um, geopolitics is also not perfect. It is one tool in a toolbox that you need to understand what's going on in the world. Um, if you were using geopolitics, say, in the late 1990s to try and understand things that were going on in the world, wouldn't have worked really well because that was a very optimistic time. Um, the European Union was rising. American democracy was going to win. The Soviets were gone. People weren't behaving in zero-sum ways and competing over resources in quite the same way. Um, so geopolitics is really operative when the world gets competitive, when the world get, gets multipolar, when there's not one obvious or two obvious powers and you get all these competing actors and you have to figure out what are their interests? Why is somebody like Putin acting this way? Why is the United States acting this way? Those are the questions that geopolitics allows you to answer and get some clarity on. It's not a be-all, end-all, but it does at least allow you to get some ground truth on that particular question. And it's no more and no less than that. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because, um, as I say, we're so familiar with the word, all of us, and, and getting more familiar with it by the day. But it's it's always taken as a branch of politics. And so it's fascinating to hear you say it's the geo part that is actually the most important because I guess because that word is truncated as a prefix, then people truncate it in terms of its importance. But that geographical aspect is really so important. You know, I had a conversation recently with my friend Simon Hunt and we talked about the heartland theory of uh, Alfred McKinder. And people forget that, you know, geography was here long before politics and geography dictates politics to an enormous extent. It does. And, and I, I'm glad you said that too, because um, you know, geopolitics, you, you hear geopolitics and you think politics, but geopolitics doesn't aspire to be politics or political science. It aspires to be a social science. It aspires to try and right. understand how human communities actually interact with each other. And you mentioned Mackinder. Before there was Mackinder, there was a, a Swedish dude that nobody talks about named Rudolf Jelen, who coined the word. He's the one who invented it in the late 1800s. And that's so important because geopolitics as a discipline, as an idea, really doesn't exist before then. It really happens when nation states are rising and starting to replace empires. And there's this whole new security, political, economic architecture to the world. And you have these social scientists who are sitting there saying, okay, all the old ways we understood how the Austro-Hungarian Empire is going to behave or what's happening with the emperor in China, all of our old ways of thinking about this don't work anymore. So when we look at the world, what do we see? Okay, we see that geography is affecting these states in the same way that an environment um, affects an organism. And they start building this theory on top of that. And not to go too far down a tangent, but one of the reasons I think geopolitics got lost and people don't talk about where it comes from and what it means is because the Nazis really liked this idea. They loved the idea that nations are just biological organisms, and if they have to expand, they have to expand. It's all amoral. And they co-opted it in a really crude and bastardized form. And if you read Nazi policy papers before they did all the terrible things they did, they're talking about geopolitics and, and using all those watchwords. And I think that's why, after World War II, 
Um, nobody really talked about geopolitics for a generation because they were nervous about what the Nazis did to it. But then they were also obliquely referring to it because it was so obviously important and so obviously predictive and explanatory of things that were going on. Yeah, you know, another fascinating component of this is is you know we we as humans have a tremendous recency bias, and uh, there are some wonderful quotes about people's understanding of history and and you know how how few people really understand it and the problems that presents. But you know, recency bias. We've lived for half a century in a unipolar world. That's not the norm. You know, that, that's really more of an exception in, in the truest sense, because the United States really has been uh, the global hegemon on its own, dominating for such a long time now. And we, we seem to be on the cusp of, if not a return to a multipolar world, which seems most likely to me, at least a struggle towards going back to that way. So talk a little bit, if you can, about how a normally functioning world works, whether the last 50, 60 years has been the exception and what it means to shift from that unipolar state back to a, a, a multipolar world. The snarky one-sentence answer to your question is that there's no such thing as a normal world, full stop. Right. Yes, that's um, fair enough. <laughs> I walked but, um, into that one. <laughs> no, but, but we all do, right? So, but... Because um, you can imagine previous periods in history where the world was unipolar. When the Roman Empire was was dominating the world, that was the norm. When the British Empire was dominating the world, that was the norm. Um, uh, then you have bipolar periods, the U.S.-Soviet Union conflict. That's an area of bipolarity. And then you have multipolar, uh, multipolar periods where everything is up for grabs. I would say in my own thinking, uh, and this is partly because I came from the George Friedman Stratfor geopolitical futures background, that background really thinks that the it's still a unipolar world, that the United States is top dog, will be top dog, it's going through some rough patches and will come out stronger. Um, in the last four to five years, I've really done a 180 on that. I don't think that's true anymore at all. And I think it's fair to say we're already in a multipolar world. And I think one of the really interesting things is that the United States was one of the countries to predict this, knew it before anybody else. The Nixon administration, with its turn to China and all the things that Nixon was doing, he did horrible things domestically. But if you look at his foreign policy speeches, he talks about a multipolar world, that the United States is going to have to get ready for it um, and that it might already be here. And I think Nixon was just a couple decades too early. The United States had a couple more decades to run. A lot of the strategists didn't understand how weak the Soviet Union was and that you were going to get this weird interregnum where the United States was not going to have a challenger. And that's where we are. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right that we're I, not that we're even moving back to a multipolar world. We're in it. The United States is not top dog. It can't tell everybody what to do anymore. And countries like Russia, like China, are doing what they want to do. It's not perfect. The United States is still the top military power and still has incredible financial and economic power to bear. I'm not talking about the U.S. going into decline. Like, that's not it at all. It's just relative to other powers in the world. Some are getting stronger, some are getting weaker, and that's a much more dynamic geopolitical environment than we've had since before World War I. I think we're rewinding the clock to the late 1800s. Yeah, you know, it, it seems, given the fact that certainly through the Trump administration and now into the Biden administration, the U.S. has actually seemed like it wanted to relinquish a lot of its responsibilities as global hegemon as gently as it can, um, whether for domestic reasons or financial reasons or whatever it may be. But there, there seems to potentially have been a path to a smooth-ish transition to a genuinely multipolar. I wonder if that is it. Full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, 
grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.